0: This film started really after, I mean, Gabriel often tells a story of when he, directly after he, Julian was thrown into Belmarsh, dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy and thrown into Belmarsh. John Shifton, that's Julian's father, the subject of the film, and Gabriel went to see Julian. With John Pilger it was the three of them on that particular visit. And uh, Gabriel came away thinking that it was the last time that he he might see Julian because he saw him in such a bad way, and you know, much the same way that we've all asked ourselves, even you know, also as members of the family, like what can we do? Gabriel asked himself, you know, what can he do?
1: They like to be associated with food because it's such a benign and and sort of nice thing. Um, so anything that you know gets them away from death and destruction, economic imperialism. Um, failures um racism all those kind of issues that are actually most people do associate with um w- with the militarized power structures and the securitized yeah. power structures of the united States. actually but if they can cover that up with a layer of icing <laughs> both metaphorically yeah. and literally um th- th- that seems to be you know part of what they do uh, make make things all nice and fluffy
2: the ignoramus guide i'm liana chan with my co-host way just way for those yeah, who can't actually see the video and we have two very special guests with us today we have matt mm. alford matt is here because we are discussing this book by alan mcclude i'm probably i think i said it right maybe maybe we, we
3: think it's alan mcclude but um...
2: alan mcclude clued Um, which is propaganda in the information age still manufacturing consent so it has like it's it's kind of like an anthology in it of different like articles and essays and it has a pretty amazing interview with Matt Alford in this about essentially the war machine in Hollywood Matt also did a documentary called theater of war which has it been released yet Matt
1: Yeah, uh, Theatre War came out um, in May of last year, so May 2022.
2: So where can our audience watch it now? You can find it on Vimeo,
1: I think, for about $5. And if you're a student in the United States, it's on Canopy for free. Oh. There might be one or two other places as well, but I can't remember. There's also a couple of festival screenings coming up, which I've forgotten as well to list here. But never mind. You could always Google it, couldn't you?
2: We'll also like include it in links a bit Yeah, they, that'd, be better, better. that'd be great. That'd be you really know? stuff yeah, like I'll that. And um, and Adrian Devant. Did I say your name wrong? Because it's like no, no, that's, yeah. that's correct. Okay, yeah. and Adrian devont who um is the producer of Ithaca, amongst many things. But that's like the main <laughs> reason we have you on this podcast. Um, so Ithaca for those of you who do not know is an amazing documentary about the father of Julian Assange Um, so these documentaries are actually kind of connected and they're connected to propaganda because Julian Assange obviously the victim of like ridiculous smears and propaganda um, someone who's instrumental in revealing the many many crimes of the empire and of corporations and the elites and lots of things like that being smeared and silenced and imprisoned in Belmarsh prison for almost four years now. So that is, if anything, the most clear-cut case of a victim of this type of thing. And the theater of war obviously shows in a very, I think, WikiLeaks way, in fact, documents, forensic evidence that the war machine is actually funding Hollywood in really big ways that maybe most people are not aware of.
3: Where do we even start? We had some preamble before, didn't we? We were saying how you came to be connected to Matthew and Adrian, and I think that's a really interesting start.
1: Well, I I think it's okay to say, I think it must have been about 2016, I wrote a letter to Julian Assange. I think partly because I genuinely cared about his situation, but also partly because I'd just written a book and I wanted to see if he might endorse it.
2: What um, was the book, What is that book, by the
1: way? I think it was the writer with no hands. I think I sent him that. I may have also sent him my first book from twenty ten. Real power. I Can't remember. But also, I thought you know maybe he want something to read while he's stuck in this embassy. I'm not sure he can get could get books at the time much, much more easily than he can now. But so so I contacted him. It seemed like the you know a, a good thing to do. Didn't hear back from him. Didn't particularly expect to. Uh, but then it was literally five years later. I heard. From his wife Stella Assange, who had evidently gone through old correspondence that had perhaps never even been read, she sent me a, a, a photograph of my letter, which was obviously quite confusing to receive a, a, a letter that I've written to the world's most wanted man now from an anonymous, num- from an anonymous number. But I, I soon established that it that it was Stella Assange. So from that, Stella wanted, well, was asking, you know you know what what can you do what what would you like to do and we talked about the possibility of getting an article about about the media representations and particularly the entertainment representations entertainment industry representations of wikileaks uh, and uh, and also i think the uh, wanted the to for me to, to write about the representation of edward snowden as well and elsie uh, manning as as part of that but we couldn't really do it that that easily partly because there'd been all, almost all of the, ent- the explosion of interest from the entertainment industry about Julian Assange all came around about 2013. And then after that, the entertainment industry just went off, went off it. And even media, news media coverage dropped off precipitously after Julian went to prison in 2019. Uh, and it had been telling off a bit before that as well. I looked at the graph the other day on, on, on how that, uh, on media coverage of, of Julian. So... But from that, uh, even though it was very difficult to write that mainstream article, I did write about it ultimately for the second edition of, a, of my book that's coming out in a couple of months. And uh, it also led to me promoting Ithaca with Adrian at a few screenings around universities and in my local cinema. Uh, my, myself and Adrian have probably only exchanged a few words. Hello, Adrian. I, I know Nils a bit better than the director. Uh, and I've met uh, some of the others at uh, various different events, but that's how I plug into it. And I, I do agree that there are great overlaps between Theatres of War and Ithaca, with the plight of Julian Assange really being a microcosm of, of all of the worst aspects of, uh, of the national security state and the, that kind of repressive apparatus that is uh, dominating our, our planet.
2: Did you find, Adrian, um, what Matt is talking about, that when the premiere of Ithaca happened, it was kind of this uphill battle to get it into the mainstream consciousness? Well,
0: yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to be on and, and be chatting to you all. Um, and thanks for doing this, this this podcast. First of all, I'm not the only producer of Ithaca, so so Gabriel Shipton is also the is the other producer. One
2: yeah. of the producers, sorry. As is Matt <laughs> is one of the producers of the <laughs> Sorry. No, about
0: yeah.
1: It's all us, but we, we like to share the credit.
0: Films like Matt's, like Matt um, is is so important. This the this research is so important in order to put it out there, it's so important too because you know it's it's the same thing. That you hear lately about whether it's the Twitter files or whether it's like there's always this argument about oh well everybody knew this anyway like uh, oh it's all this big conspiracy but no no like when when you actually have proof like when WikiLeaks provides proof like when when there's research done and backed up and there's evidence that this is going on that's 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 really important and it's it's always always I find that it's also part of this deceptive. Uh, you know, environments that that uh, just accept that, oh, well, there's always conspiracy, that, well, there's, you know, everybody already, already knew this. And you downplay the importance of actual evidence, hard evidence. But anyway, just, so, you know, an uphill battle. Um, you know, this film, this film started really after, I mean, Gabriel often tells a story of when he, uh, directly after he Julian was thrown into Belmarsh, dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy and thrown into Belmarsh. John Shipton, that's Julian's father, the subject of the film, and Gabriel went to see Julian. It was John Pilger it was the three of them on that particular visit. And uh, Gabriel came away thinking that it was the last time that he, he might see Julian because he saw him in such a bad way, and, you know, much the same way that... We've all asked ourselves, even, you know, also as members of the family, like, what can we do? Gabriel asked himself, you know, what can he do? He comes from uh, doing fiction features, world of film. And to him, that was a way that, you know, he could do something is make a documentary. I've been in film for some time. We spoke, we spoke with John, with Stella, also came to be part of that. And we started following John and we followed him for two and a half years and we had by the end of it we had 200 days of footage so anyway just now I I deviate but it's I'm just trying to paint a picture of where we started out was a very very dark place and it has been a a, of course you know we've knocked on many doors to you know get uh, free sales or financing how are we going to get made get this movie made as well cooperation and all of that and we not we we knocked on the doors of all the big names you know all the big biggest streaming platforms and all of this and you know we often got like oh yeah this is very interesting but you know on the one hand it's you know your family so that's biased you know that's a problem. you know why would we can't really put any faith in in this in this biased story around- so
2: basically all the main platforms rejected you based on really uh-huh. kind of ridiculous reasons Oh, yeah, they said we
0: this well, sorry. Yeah, the other aspect sorry, that's is was the was a political like this is not something we want to get in the middle of. That's quote quote, unquote. So, obviously, there was this other a- aspect to it, and so that's where we started. That that was the you know, we made the film. You know, all these no's just confirmed our that we were on the right track. All these no's, and we you know, we ended up making the film. We, we've been. Festivals, you know, with the film we got the audience award, which I think is like really the 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 best award at any festival to get is like you know not not the oh we're going to invite these people over to our festival because you know we have a prize to give them, but like how the audience reacts, right? So the, the Human Rights Film Festival in Berlin, we got the audience award at Soho London Independent Film Festival, we got a, a, an audience award. So so it has been an uphill battle, but it's also you also know. You know, the tide is changing and the support for Julian is growing and all those, all those, you know, the powers that be would have us believe, oh, there's no support for Julian. That's, that's kind of, they still push that. But the truth is, is the truth is that there is this massive support everywhere and they just don't want you to believe that. You know, it's very easy to say. I was looking at this book, Propaganda Blitz. I forget. Uh, you
1: know, David Cromwell
0: and uh, David and it was the, it was interesting to see like how how they the journalistic ex- establishment in in the UK like is is it's you know you can only liken their behavior to like a bunch of bullies on a, sc- on a school playground that gang up and sort of you, you know now we're going to you know even even just the language it's it's so absurd to to sort of that a journalist should be expressing themselves this way is completely well a unprofessional professional and and just well yeah dangerously childish sorry i just put on a completely different tangent here but
2: you said one thing that like earlier in the beginning <laughs> is that i wanted to go back to because i think it's a really important point it's like when you were saying about the revelations of the twitter file people tend to say and i was i was definitely one of them that was like well i knew this information before but I think uh, to me, I knew it before, but I also think I I felt like I had certain proof before it had come out. But there are certain things like, for example, it reminded me of how Agent Orange uh, is, has been dealt with, like in the, the Theater of War documentary, Matt. You know, there was that section where they showed like how Agent Agent Orange, it has actually been acknowledged in the U.S. because there's, there was a $180 million payout or something to the vets who were affected by Agent Orange. But it has never been acknowledged in Vietnam. And so it's this thing of like, even if we're saying, oh, everybody knows this, like everybody now, I mean, everybody knows about Agent Orange, but there's just this real lack of accountability when it's not like, evidenced and documented and forensically proved that it happened because they can just deny it and for people in the west sometimes they don't think of people in vietnam or people in other countries as humans so they don't realize like the actual cost of what agent orange did you know it's like maybe i mean having been to you yeah, know go ahead sorry and is
1: continuing to do as i understand it
2: Yeah, exactly. Like when you go there and you actually see someone without limbs or that was somehow affected by that, it's it's much, I mean, like we shouldn't have to have the actual, but that's it. Human evidence in our faces of the cost of that. Um, And then the continual denial, the gaslighting of that denial. That's why evidence matters, (laughs) essentially. Yeah, so it is really- I I agree. I
1: I, I think that- uh The more evidence that comes out, the better. I think it's very easy for people who aren't necessarily that politically interested or that politically plugged in to say, oh, they're all the same, they're all doing bad things all the time, being really cynical about it. But what good does that do? What good do they do? Ultimately, it's the pressure that is applied by continually having the story on the headlines and and to get the story continually in the headlines you need to have new evidence and new angles on that story all the time. Just because people know that the United States has done some bad things at X or Y and Z, that's not pressure. That's not sufficient to make any changes. It needs to be sustained, systematic, and, uh, and accurate information continually coming out in, in official documentation. To, um, and that's which is exactly what WikiLeaks are doing and exactly why they were so despised by the establishment. Because if you don't do that, then you have people, you know, probably the person living next door to you is probably like, oh, I don't like the government. Oh, they all, they're such rotters, aren't they? Who gives, it, who cares what they, what that, that attitude's just despondency. It's, no, it, that doesn't get us anywhere. You need to be, people need to be reminded. They need to be reminded of the factual information, but they need to be reminded of the human, uh, the human cost, the human stories that are around that. To make a more humane world, you can't have a more humane world just by saying, "Oh, everyone's a rotter." That's not going to do any good at all.
2: Yeah, and getting coming back to this idea of like because you're family, Adrian, you come, you're just biased. It's just like I think that is just one of the ways in which again you can dismiss any sort of different differing voices. And isn't it kind of related to number three on the five filters from this book, which is Number three on this was reliance on information provided by government, big business and other official experts. You know, when you have like a a really short list of official experts that just happen to be from the State Department, you know, then obviously the most objective, neutral sources of information, all in quotation marks for people only listening to this podcast, you know, are going to be CIA, MI5, State Department (laughs) narrative people. And so... Yeah, you're never gonna get like any dissenting voices in that case.
0: Well, I mean, in, in in our case, it's it it kind of boils down to something more human. Like when you when like sh- sure you can see it through the lens, and I think it's very apt to see it through that lens when we're talking about it as now. But for us, it's just well, we're family. We want to show this. You you know, it's it's not a campaign per se. It's like we want to show this other story, this other Julian, the Julian of that, that's a father and a son and a brother you know a loving caring human being uh, you know this is this is another story there's another side to it so I mean it, it does you know it does obviously it counters and it has it it's it's people come away from the the film affected emotionally affected I was in the Q a online just the other day and this guy was saying you know I'm I'm, I'm almost weeping and this kind of thing so people do get affected and that's what we want well obviously that's what we set out to do is to humanize you know julian for people because the uh, everything has been sort of smears and and to dehumanize him
2: right so yeah easier yeah. than to just lock him up in prison you know for how many years if you don't think of him as human and i do agree with you that ethica is um very very emotional and really kind of I was very moved watching it it's just it, it was just very it was very profound in a very quiet way actually which is not true of a lot of things I watched I would say I'm a cynical person so I, I was I'm really moved by it it's a beautiful piece of work I think
1: I think underlying the, the smears against Julian is is something quite interesting I mean there's been all sorts of smears as as you know including he smeared shit on the walls of the embassy, which is just a false and nonsensical bunch of nonsense. But at the underlying, uh, uh, the kind of meta narrative of, of what is uh, informing people's attitude to Julian, I think, is that he's a narcissist. I think that's been a very right. powerful kind of underlying idea of what he is, because from that springs all of the bad behavior that he is alleged to to have done. But it's interesting. I was, I was reading Media Lens the other day, uh, Adrian, um, like the Propaganda Blitz book, but uh, more up to date uh, article. Uh, and they were talking about the use of um, uh, about how the establishment paints individuals as narcissists um, when they are uh, when they start to break through and become powerful. There were several examples there, but the three that I remember were Jeremy Corbyn and then perhaps even more so Mick Lynch union leader who's become famous over the past six months or so due to the ex- extended strikes in Britain and Mick Lynch seems like to me a very straight guy and that's why he's resonated so well with the public but the media keep painting him and keep asking him the questions like oh you must love the limelight you must love it this is what it's all about for you isn't it this is what it's about it's getting famous isn't it getting or getting your name up on the paper and he's just no no but it, it seems to be quite I'm not saying that this is necessarily deliberate in the sense seems it's, deliberate not, it's not necessarily i'm not necessarily saying that it's coordinated but there right. there seems to be a very there is a pattern i think of presenting people who break through who are successful george galloway was another another one who was presented in that way as narcissistic people who break through to the public it's the the instant the instant reaction from the establishment is oh you're doing this for ulterior motive for your own egocentricity i remember back in i remember even the big issue this really annoyed me because obviously the big issue is quite a good magazine and you know politically you know they're, they're not pushing any horrible agenda but I remember back in 2013 I picked up a copy of the big issue and it was uh, and the front cover of it was about Julian Assange it was him in a James Bond pose that they'd put him in and the, the headline of the whole thing was the spy who loved himself and I remember thinking that's they've hit exactly what the people who hate this guy want that's perfectly and that's that." essential view of those oppos- of those opponents to to the western national security establishment that, that, that it's that, such
2: a weird one because i'm actually not sure why it's so effective and i actually it's cuz it
1: touches everything if you're narcissistic well, it means that everything that you ever make is 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 tainted if i just said that you are you've got a, a I don't know what it would be if i just said you've got bad breath or whatever then that's only one thing. But narcissism runs right along every single aspect, every single choice. I mean,
2: I would venture to say that, um, and now I'm going to be like, wait, is this correct? Because as the other fellow Asian, <laughs> I actually think it's a very Western um, framing of something because we have such a, quote unquote, narcissistic, individualistic culture. And so mm-hmm. we sort of project our worst traits, I guess, on, on people we hate. I mean, right. Like to sort of control that narrative, but I don't, it's not something that I really find that resonant outside of our Western. I don't know. Am I wrong way? Like.
3: I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting point. I I haven't really consumed so much Asian media that I would maybe recognize that point, whether they smear people that that they don't like as narcissists or not. I don't know it is a very effective one though because I suppose it just it it really just uh, it puts all of their actions in that that light I guess so everybody's able to reframe almost everything that comes out about the target as you know something some an action that's there to feed his own ego I guess
2: yeah but you could I I just find it so ineffective for me I guess because you could call every single Mm -hmm person every single well-known person is narcissistic Mm -hmm. like you Uh, could call anyone you know all the neolibs as well obama etc so i mean like how does it even affect anything it's more about what are they doing what are they saying and what do they stand for i mean isn't that sort of
1: yeah but 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 what you're doing there is applying critical thinking but to the casual casual observer (laughs) the person who's not engaging in that i think it's a it's it's quite a, a good... It's a very good sort of soft way of saying, of saying, oh, no, oh, that guy. Oh, right, yeah. Well, he is very obsessed
3: with him. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and there needs to be no evidence for that. It's not painting... It's not saying that person's evil or that person's sadistic or that person was cruel to their mother or anything like that. Nothing specific. It just taints everything. And that's what they did with Corbyn, although they went a little bit more specific with that with the anti-Semitism story. Again, depends who you want to where did that come from you know is it always from exactly the same people i'm not saying that but uh, but it's it's an interesting pattern of how to smear people it's, a, it's a, i think it's a very effective one i don't know if it does work outside of the of the western of western civilization but certainly to me that's that's what's happened with those people and they were important figures or maybe still are important figures who could have broken through and done a lot of good and to some extent they have but
2: i mean i think it it would work if it was just repeated over and over again like anywhere it just i don't think it's as much of a buzz word catchphrase yeah. right now that the culture but you're definitely right in that that's what you hear about putin as well like you hear about almost every sea any any enemy of the u.s i suppose or the empire
3: that is kind of true actually you do hear about xi jinping as well that film. They'll say that, st- or Kim, Kim Jong Un. They'll, they'll, always say, they'll always say, you know, he's very sensitive about his hair, yeah. or he's yeah. very sensitive about <laughs> Winnie the Pooh, or you know, something like that. So it does seem like quite a common narrative, I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it's completely sidesteps any geopolitics, any dynamics, and anything just mm. makes it about a personal petty squabble. So I guess it's distracting for people. And it's same, I think the same happened with Julian. It's because then now no one's talking about the WikiLeaks revelations. I guess or keeping war criminals accountable. Yeah, I think the other thing too, and um, we sort of touched upon this a little bit earlier, Matt. Like maybe our only point of disagreement. <laughs> let's go. Is is kind of the. And yeah. I think I'm putting words in your mouth. So you're probably gonna be probably. like, I did not mean that. Hey, I know it you want this conflict. <laughs> no, on. you wanted conflict. That's our first conflict. <laughs> but essentially this idea of um that both sides are sort of equal the US imperialism there's a lot of this stuff like when 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 people sometimes look at wikileaks they're like well but it just uh revealed the war crimes of the US like it just went off to the US you know like really if it went off to every country equally we yeah. would all be the same like there's that narrative there um there's a kind of like the narrative of like if it's not the US empire you know then it will be China or Russia taking the place of the US empire and I think that's one of the, actually the most dangerous parts of this propaganda. We're just like instead of keeping ourselves accountable for what we're doing, you know, our argument is like well well if we didn't rape that woman someone else would. <laughs> it just is the most stupid argument even on the face of it. And then when we actually get into it, which is like there are no other countries that are even comparable to the US empire in terms of military the military machine. There's nothing comparable. Not even we're talking about like less than twenty military bases compared to a thousand military bases. I mean that's like a ridiculous um, discrepancy. But so obviously you're not disagreeing with that <laughs> saying. Maybe where you where we kind of have a slight disagreement is like um with kind of the framing around the Ukraine proxy war. I feel quite strongly that um we shouldn't be phrased, phrasing things in, in in the way of like, well, it's a war between two imperialist powers and oh, it's Russian yeah. expansionism versus US expansionism. Yes,
1: that is a difficult one because I, I think really to, and I'm reluctant to be drawn on it. And I can remember the other thing that we slightly disagreed about when we talked before, but which we I'll get onto if you like. But I'm reluctant to be drawn on it because I think a lot of that, as soon as you start to take a a position that is so firm on the Ukraine issue, I think that's when you start to fall into one ideological zone or another. Obviously, I'm anti-war, I'm very much pro-peace negotiation within Ukraine, but I don't think I know, and I know that 99.9% of, of people who are outside of Russia and Ukraine do not know that country, those two countries and those two political systems, perfectly enough to know exactly how to characterise events on the ground. I've been speaking to a, a PhD candidate in Moscow. I've been questioning her again and again and again about territory in in Ukraine. And eventually she just was, she was like, I don't know either. I don't, I've, been, I've been here for... 30-odd years, and I don't know the answer to the exact... To, to this. So, so I'm just a bit wary of, of that particular thing. And I think it's enough to say that... Uh, and it's accurate enough to say that what Russia did in February of, of last year was an act of aggression, It was illegal, it was wrong, it was an escalation. And I do think that that should be condemned. Whether we call that... I, I, I'm certainly reluctant to call that imperialism. I think that that's uh, imperialism implies something much more stru- uh, structural and and the building of empire. Um, but it's nevertheless it is an act of great power aggression. But also again within the context of NATO behaving appallingly for the past thirty years. So I think so. I'm a bit reluctant to say that it's um, yeah to, to to sort of go further than that in terms of the.
2: Yeah, I think that's the main difference between us. Also, I think to me, it, you know, again, number four on the on the five filters, which is wow. flak. And we had a little disagreement with this too. Like, I think a lot of this weighing of your words about talking about Russia, you know, looking at the minute ma- map of Russia territory, et cetera, is very much because as anybody in the West, if you just come out and say, look, NATO's expansion, the provocation provocation of this war the escalation of this war because of the war machine and the u.s empire's need for hegemony that is really the cause of the war and when you look at it geopolitically that's that's what we're faced with whether we're looking at russia or china the escalation of these war tactics is what we're looking at like if you just come out
1: i think it's fair to say that on almost every occasion in almost every conflict around the world, the United States is the is the organization which is escalating. Just, I, but I just mean, I think it would be fraudulent to say that uh, in February, at least on that particular part of February 2022, that it was the United States that escalated. Russia did escalate at that point. I'm not saying that... that I just,
2: I, I mean, I guess I disagree with that part. I think that US definitely escalated it. I think they did. They provoked it, they escalated. They knew what they were doing. They wanted this war. I my my thing of... week, do you think
1: in the week running up to it or the the weeks running up to it when they were saying ah Russia's going to invade yep. Russia's going to invade. Yep. Do you think cuz cuz I'm on I'm on the fence about this. Do you think that that was a way to deter Russia from no. invading? That that was was a way to cover their asses. Putting more pressure on the whole situation. No, I
2: think that was a way to cover their asses because they learned from the Iraq war. They learned from the anti-war protest there and they killed it. Go ahead, Adrian.
0: No, that's that's something that I was about to pick up on. It's like, maybe, you know, to my shame, I didn't go into, I I wasn't tuned into the ins and outs of all that moment of, you know, of of Ukraine. I have followed it, but not in depth as I've followed many other things and to me what's chilling is to see the absence of of like the war movement as there was before you know raises the hairs on the back of my neck because it feels like the war machine or you know whatever they've learned so well how to how to deal with that with that there was no colin powell sitting at a table at the u.n saying we need your backup for this you know or the equivalent thereof, and therefore no space, I mean, also within time and, and physically, for people to sort of react, you know, to to sort of coalesce and say, wait, hang on a second, what the hell's going on here? And Yeah, the extension
1: okay, I found it very disturbing in the, in the, I think about two weeks after the invasion, I thought that there would be calls for peace from the, from the Stop the War Coalition. And indeed, Stop the War did arrange a protest uh, throughout the country, and I went to the one in my city. But when I got there, Stop the War wasn't even there. I mean, I think there was one guy who was like, what, like literally like one old bloke with a banner. But everyone else, the other 2,000-plus people who were there, were there to oppose Russian aggression. Uh, Russian aggression.
2: Exactly. So I think that's what, what it is. It's
1: that was, like... I found that very disturbing because, I mean, regardless of who's right or wrong or who's escalated at any particular point like that's part of the whole principle of the anti-war movement of the past 50 plus years is to uh, is to de- is to de-escalate and th- and there are always ways of, of finding ways there are always ways to do that through diplomacy i think that there's been a, this weird appalling thing which is the the idea that appeasement or that there's that diplomacy is sometimes somehow equals appeasement one of the most disgusting gifts that Adolf Hitler gave us, I think, is this idea that we always need to escalate, because that's the only way to... You know, the head of NATO the other day, didn't he, said um, the way to peace is through weapons. I mean, that and that passes without comment, except for on the, you know, the, the, the fringes. Yeah. That's the kind of world that we have, we have allowed to develop after having a much better international se- sense of international law and international peace and justice running up to the 1970s but we've allowed that to fall apart completely extraordinarily dangerous and and disturbing and really i don't even know
2: if i really believe in that now i think looking back at my incredible ignorance uh you know because we did uh, the jakarta method on our podcast oh yeah so my incredible ignorance about that time period pre-1970s and the the um the rule of law or whatever that apparently the u.s and the uk is in charge of and has very kindly given to the rest of us colonized nations, I don't even believe in that anymore. I think we are just like propagandized to think that we had moral authority, but we never really did.
1: I think what I'm all I'm saying, um, Ileana, is uh, I'm not saying that that our countries were great or anything like that in the back in the sixties and seventies. I'm just saying that there were there were international treaties that were keeping some semb- semblance of stability between, at the very least, the great powers, and uh, I, after you. have recommended it. I've got out the Jakarta method as well from the library and then I've been having a look at that today but so I'm completely aware that you know there are all these abuses going on throughout the world I'm just saying that there was a, a sense there was a peace movement for a start uh, that was meaningful and and could do something and that was sometimes attached to socialist groups and to trade unions and, and all sorts but there were also international treaties arms control treaties these have all been jettisoned over the past particularly over the past six or seven years But even before that, there have been uh, these, these kind of any kind of semblance of international law and international stability through treaties just been annihilated since the 90s.
2: Yeah. And I think that's why I'm so against that specific framing of always going to, well, which territories is Russia going after? Like the aggressive expansion of Russia and da da da. And it's just like it's missing the forest for the trees because if we're we know that nato is escalating we're part of nato that's what we should be focusing on when you do the other thing it's not even okay it's not because i'm like pro russian invasion no it's because why are we talking about that when we have a much bigger so so my my um i guess real disagreement with you is that to it's actually a trap to fall into looking at the map and trying to figure out the treaty of the um, the border lines or whatever because it's a complete distraction from what is really going on which is NATO trying to escalate this war NATO now or the US really um, now talking about and this has always been like part of their plan to get to China right it's that whole um stopping the multipolar world
1: situation yeah I mean, but, but... First of all, let me say that I, I definitely don't want to fall into that trap. I just want to, I, all I want to do is, is acknowledge it. So let me stop falling into that trap and and, and continue with, with the discussion away from that. I'm very happy to concede that, 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 that point to you. But, but I was reading, it was literally just this morning, though, an article in the press about, you know, the, the disagreements within the American administration at the moment. You know, the reason that the, uh, the there are some parts of the State Department that want to win and escalate the war against Russia and then the, those parts that want to de-escalate and deal with it but the reason that they want to de-escalate is so that they can focus on
2: China exactly I mean that is how insane that's why, that's why I'm always like crazy. when people say there uh, is those, those are the peaceniks the ones who actually yeah there are no peaceniks there are no peaceniks in the US no, um, admin yeah there's not really dissenting voices in the same way that we think of it outside no, of that no, no um contraction or whatever but yeah that so that's i guess that is the thing that we can consistently fall into that trap and mainly because in the west to to say anything different the flack is really extreme i mean we're talking about no to nato um like um event being canceled twice already conway hall being one um so we know that even our even our most supposed i don't know stop the war like all these voices that are the ones that we i guess have historically depended on to be our moral compass or they're there was a facing flak maybe or maybe they really do believe in the whole russia aggression thing but i think it was a trap laid by as you were saying two weeks before the war u.s keeps pivoting like changing the frame to be like russia is aggressive russia is going to invade etc so just like Russia is aggressive, Russia's going to invade. And the the anti-war people were like, no, they don't want war. They don't want da-da-da. And so when they invaded, it just completely took the wind out of any anti-war uh, sails. And then suddenly they're like, oh, no, does that mean I'm for war? So they changed their position and yeah. essentially completely destroyed the actual real anti-war movement because they didn't, you know, keep their, they got, they fell into that trap. They got lost in the trap and now we're, we're suffering, the, suffering the consequences of that, which is like you're saying, there's no, there's very, very few people that actually are holding NATO responsible and trying to de-escalate the war.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, let's consider some of those things that uh, NATO has been involved in in escalation or refusing to de-escalate. And one of the most most significant ones was in April of last year when Boris Johnson, the prime minister of Britain, went to Ukraine and told President Zelensky, even if you are prepared to negotiate, the collective West is not. Wow. Okay. I mean that's changed a bit now because Biden. I think I read the a couple of days ago has basically said you know give away. I mean they're all t- they're all talking about a carve up now, uh, behind the scenes. They weren't. You know, they didn't want to. It was all to do. Oh, it's Ukraine's decision. Ukraine's decision. Now they're, talking now they're talking about a carve up, and that's of course what will happen. It always was going to be what what has happened. But that you know that was Boris Johnson's position, and obviously he would have been representing the Americans and I guess the rest of NATO there as well. You know there were there were opportunities even into the war to to de-escalate, but the, you know, this war has been a long time coming. It's not just that post nineteen nineties uh, demonization of 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 Russia, but it's also that whole that this has all been played up against the uh, is called by critics RussiaGate and is called more laboriously Russian interference in American elections by people who think that there's some credibility to this nonsensical story about Putin's memes somehow somehow getting Trump elected in 2016 but this is that's the backstory to to this whole thing that's the the kind of meta-narrative if you like which is that you know that Russia is somehow this enormously powerful organized country which is able to to topple governments simply with the press of a button. It's like a
2: hundred thousand I think of Facebook advertising,
1: uh, 000, yeah, hundred thousand dollars <laughs> Facebook advertising, and and did it's done nothing. RussiaGate, which I think it is fair to call it that, but I know a lot of serious people and friends and colleagues who believe this, and it, to me, it's the stupidest conspiracy. Talk about conspiracy theories. I mean, talk about harmful conspiracy theories. I mean, who gives a shit if you believe that whatever happened to President Kennedy? But this one. This one has provided more than the mood music, really, for this this massive war. Really, the, the entire background apparatus for the, the, the sort of mental apparatus to justify this conflict. There's no need to be fighting with Russia. Like, it's, I mean, there's, there, there is no... And it's a very weak country. This is the other thing that we keep forgetting collectively. A country like Russia is extraordinarily weak. It cannot do anything. It cannot click a button and make the memes get Trump in. That doesn't happen. It didn't happen. It's a, the very fact that we think that it even consider that it may have happened is an indication of how weak they are and how powerful the, the Western national Yeah, is. as if
2: the U.S. hasn't couped governments across the world. So
1: all of that is... Um, uh, uh, Russia's economy is about the size of Italy's. I mean, I've seen it go up and down a little bit around those those, those figures, but it's a, it's a weak country. And it's not an expansionist country, except for that it does want to deal with what it considers to be security issues on its border, what it considers to be security issues.
2: I mean, I would say one thing that is different for me about Russia and China, like if we were to look at this Ukraine proxy war or U.S. proxy war really as like sort of inevitable, I think sometimes people say that. And I would say I think it might have been inevitable in terms of because of the way that Russia is sort of set up. it It is military operational. You know, it does sort of intervene and intervene, maybe it's the wrong word, but it has military operations across the world, et cetera. I would say differently about China. So now that we, you know, as you mentioned, we're going to, the narrative is going to slowly pivot towards China now, you know, as you're hearing, quote unquote, dissension in the American government so you're gonna be we're gonna be hearing more and more stories I and mean, they've already started we're, we're talking about yeah, well, there was a balloon that went over america right. me are Very we all afraid balloon.
1: first first the memes from vladimir putin and then the balloon,
3: <laughs> the balloon.
2: have you heard anything about the balloon way in like asia um
3: i also watched um it uh recently and oh. the uh, it is that horror clown and one of his trademarks is a big red balloon so you you maybe kind it was of a see a chinese
2: balloon because it was red it
3: was red yeah no it was a white balloon the, the chinese balloon was white but i think in the memes it was red as well so uh, it made me think maybe there's like a horror clown behind like ready to like grab some children or something like that
2: fair that's yeah that's again but you know that is propaganda way that you've fallen for again <laughs> in Hollywood. oh yeah um scary
1: because he lived in a drain. This balloon yeah. is 30,000 feet up in the air, not attached to a killer clown. Do you
2: feel, are you guys feeling at all the anti-China propaganda ramping up? I mean, I was trying to think, like, maybe I'm feeling it more because I'm biased being Chinese. <laughs> but do you guys feel that as well? Or is it just like, sometimes I think, oh, this is so clearly... You know propaganda, anti Chinese propaganda. You'd only be scared in this like this balloon situation if you were kind of secretly a little bit scared of Chinese people. <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of people just think it they're fact- factual, and I guess that's how pa- propaganda works. But do you guys feel like any sort of ramping up? Have you noticed anything like that?
0: It's funny because um, I co founded this uh Chinese independent film festival, um, hmm. in Spain. And it's funny because it was two thousand well, the first edition was in two thousand and seventeen. And we we did I think three editions before COVID. And um you know, we had uh Chinese stars and directors, producers come over to, to Spain. It it was it was great, but at the time, especially on the second edition where we were also in Madrid, not just Barcelona, but like the the doors were flung open to us, you know. There's the One Belt One Road initiative. All of this, like, there was a lot of interest from in big institutions from uh to to talk about the possibilities of, of collaborating. so, there was like a lot of opening up. That seems to have evaporated. So really, things that like I'm very much um that gets my blood boiling, which is like you get you. You sort of demonize like the all the all. Uh, there's like a cultural demonization as well. Like oh, so you're you're going to stop engaging in sort of well, whatever it is, whether it's soft power, or all of this. Like that's an important part of like othering people is to is to not even engage. Culturally, and what I what I was going to say about what gets my blood boiling with at the beginning of the Russian conflict, like there were Russian conductors being fired. Oh, we won't watch Tarkovsky. It's off. our things like let's ban Dostoevsky and Tulsa? It's like what absolute madness! Like mm-hmm. what hell are we talking about? So that that gets me really angry, and um, and precisely, I think that that's one of the important things to do. Uh, is to precisely build bridges through culture, through understanding through our, our our common humanity, right? Like, so So the film festival for me wasn't, you, that, that's what it was doing. It was bringing people together to watch Chinese film. They were independent Chinese films. I mean, I'd also been to festivals where there was like the, the state pavilion and you flip through the catalog and it was just pretty abysmal. Like there's, you know, 150 films and they were all like I'd I'd never heard of them or my mates hadn't heard of them and they were just garbage. Surely now's the time to learn Chinese now's the time to learn Russian now's the time to try and
3: bridge the things that make sense that can bring people together. Are are you trying to say that Kung Fu Yoga was not a culturally valuable film? Which one Kung Fu Fu Panda? Yoga.
2: Yoga. (laughs)
3: I think, it was a, I think it was one that coincided with um, with a Modi uh, Xi Jinping uh, state oh. visit or something like that. And uh, Wow. And Kung- <laughs> Kung <laughs> starring Jackie Chan on the Kung Fu side and then a, a major Bollywood star on the yoga side. Um,
2: Is this real?
3: Uh, it's real. It's hilarious.
2: Oh, wow. I want to watch this film. <laughs>
3: Get watch some it, China,
2: actually. India. It's definitely you
3: know. worth definitely entertaining yeah that's that's yeah, great propaganda
2: good propaganda
3: maybe <laughs> it was good propaganda it was both it was two nations coming together
2: yeah
3: and, and the, I think the soft power argument was wep- was weaponized more against Russia like I haven't seen it as much
0: against, against China. China
3: although rishi sunak I think did before he was prime minister um Say something really strong about wanting to close all the Confucius Institutes.
2: Yes. In the yeah. UK. So it, it is, is so and then, extreme. and then the other thing is TikTok. Like the US keeps trying to shut down TikTok, even though it's also foreign-owned. So that's kind of hilarious. That's but not
3: soft power, though, I think that's more just because TikTok doesn't really promote any.
2: But they're saying it does. Software. I think.
3: Yeah. Uh, I think they were saying something ridiculous, like it siphons off data. Oh <laughs>
2: yeah,
3: data of Americans to China. Or something yeah,
2: they're something yeah, like that. that's true. They are also saying um, that. Yeah.
3: But um, but yeah, the soft power stuff as well. I mean, I think it's the, the, um. They were also, I saw some um for raw on um on the internet about um there was a Soviet architecture exhibition. Oh yeah. Uh, And there was a hit piece against the the architecture exhibition saying that this is going to increase Russian soft power. And then I think it turned out to be um, someone who was just writing a hit piece about his his Russian ex-girlfriend who was uh, actually in charge of the exhibition. And he he kind of alleged in his piece that, or he got a reporter to allege in, in the piece that she had ties to Putin or something like that. Something ridiculous, which they withdrew.
2: Oh, that's interesting. The plot thickens.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. So if you have a, a, an ex-partner that you want to get um your own back on and they happen to be Russian, then this is this is your time, I guess. Link
1: them to Vladimir Putin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the plot thickens, but it doesn't mean that the plot's any good, does it? No. No.
2: <laughs> Speaking of, that's a pivot to Hollywood. <laughs> and back to the book. <laughs> Yay, I did it. An amazing segue. (laughs)
3: Congratulations
1: congratulations (laughs) on yourself off air.
2: (laughs) Not on air, Darren. Yeah, well, I think that was uh, some of the revelations in this book and in Theatre of War about the vast funding of films by the military-industrial complex. Um, Were any of the films sort of surprising to you guys like I I think I should ask Wei and and Adrian because Matt I don't know (laughs) I don't know if anything was surprising to you Matt maybe you can tell me
1: if if you look at it for long enough it all stops being surprising exactly
2: (laughs) I assume you worked on it for a
1: while so it's no longer surprising surprising to begin with I mean it was surprising (laughs) the extent to which um the uh the national security state um uh, influence the the products. And that was the, I mean, I would have probably have given up doing research around about 2014, 2015, um, because I'd done all the things I wanted to do academically um, and like theoretically with the work I'd done on Chomsky and, and all that. Uh, it was only because me and Tom Secker got that list of films um, uh, that were supported by the Department of Defence, which at the time we, there was a list of about a thousand or so, which was still much higher than the official figure um, and that figure has now ballooned to more like ten thousand, if you include TV series and stuff. Um, so, so when we got that, we, we that that has basically propelled the last probably seven, eight, uh, seven, eight nine years of my work. Uh, I don't think I would have continued as, as a uh, as a researcher or a documentary maker if I um, if it hadn't been for that. So that really was a, a genuine. We were really surprised by that, and I think everyone would be. That's another one of those cases where. You know, everyone says afterwards, as we were saying at the beginning, mm-hmm. everyone says, "Oh well, I always knew that the government did." And no, you didn't. You didn't yep. ever know that. I mean, the you thing is, <laughs> and, and, and that's why we know. Sound like you know, that's. A lot of people do that because they don't want to feel out of control, and they don't want to feel that they didn't get the answer right, and they don't want to feel that.
2: Yeah,
1: that but I think it. they want to normalize it. They want like, to normalize it. and it's bloody awful. Sorry well, the down. thing
2: was that was um really interesting about the documentary though was that even though I didn't know this man, <laughs> um, <laughs> <There we go. laughs> um, the um the the changing of the facts were just really. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't know the facts on the ground in these war um operations that you know, they, they changed for, um, was it the discovery network? They had a history channel or something. They had like a series and they just changed like key facts. And then that really famous movie by Peter Berg called Lone Survivor, which Mm -hmm. when I saw the trailer for that, I refused to watch that. I was like, this looks like propaganda. And then sure enough, like, because they changed these like really key pieces of information, um, I think that is really helpful because like you said, yeah, I could go like, oh, this is war propaganda, that is war propaganda. And it is, it's obvious for me, but it's still um it's still impactful, especially for that um history channel TV series where they really maligned the the peace activist who committed suicide because of what he experienced during the war, I guess you could say
1: the long road home the uh, yeah the, the mini series yeah um uh was it discovery channel or was it um history channel uh yeah i can't yeah i can't remember that, mentioning... i mean the
2: key thing is that it's, it was a channel that's supposedly more factual yeah you know yep. rather than yeah yeah um that's like that's actually so horrific um the way that obviously i don't like you know it's like i don't want to be that meme uh, that goes around where it's like um you know where they show the like they show the atrocities that the U.S. has committed, and they'll say, "Not only will the U.S. invade your country, they'll make a movie about how hard it was for their soldiers twenty years later." You know, I don't want to, I don't want to be that person. But um, that, that I think person
1: it, is uh, the comedian Frankie Boyle, who I think rather right. hits nail on the head when oh. he said it back in twenty fourteen. <laughs> <Boyle. laughs>
2: You're right. <laughs> Good credit. Good credit where is you. Um, yeah. Exactly, I don't read that, but but it did really highlight just um, how horrendously their veterans are also um, being treated.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the key thing about that was that I mean, obviously, you know, usually I think the focus should be on um, on overseas victims because they're they're right. so regularly killed in such large numbers. But uh, on on that particular case, the long road home, um, uh, which we show in detail for about about twenty minutes of the documentary. Um, how those changes were made. They were screwing over their own soldiers, yes. really explicitly. And they always and do that. interviews the real soldiers, and they're just they they can't believe it. They're absolutely gutted that they're uh, that the people that they worked with are being misrepresented so horrendously. And in fact, even the advisor, the military advisor um, who uh, was on the production, ends up being the hero of the series what a coincidence <laughs>
0: wow.
1: how blatant I mean that, but but there are a lot of examples like that that are comparably blatant but that one is was pretty striking and it was one that we really chased down because roger the um the executive producer of the film and the uh the, uh, the director and narrator he actually went to go and see these people um and uh and so he was really able to go into that in a very Granular way uh, and and investigate it and and speak to them in um, personally uh, and then put them on camera and they're very sympathetic, lovely kind of like these poor military guys, Um, and no one had done that before. But you know, it's on all of on so many of these cases, it's just it's just jaw dropping. But anyway, I don't know if there were any examples that anyone else thought of. I was I was filling in there.
0: (laughs) No, no, definitely, really, really, uh, really uh, shocking. The Ellen DeGeneres show. Well, et cetera, et cetera. There was a long list of them that, um, yeah, that were still quite um, you know, surprising to see. In there.
2: Yeah, like the reality shows, right? They also have to get sent to the <laughs> Wow.
1: Yeah, there's um, a lot of cake shows. Uh, I'm not sure if we've discussed that before off air, but you know, there's a lot of cookery shows that the military likes to associate itself with, and indeed the CIA as well. Um, I think. I can't remember was it cake boss i think that the cia got them to um like the, the the waiters had to come around to feed the head of the the heads of the cia um and then oh I, think, I think it was cake boss and then and then before dessert the um the head of the cia has to go off for like has to is whisked away for important business now we don't really know if that was genuine or if it was just like made to make it look like not know, genuine like, come on dessert, damn it <laughs> But there's a lot of this kind of association with uh, with food um, and with cakes, um, mm. so that you have military. Fig- and it, I, I can't remember what the details of the Ellen Show were. To be honest with you, sometimes the the information that we have is is not at script level. It's only at the at the level of um, uh, of like memos. So you just have a few lines sort of summarising how the military's been involved. Um, but often they, I think they like to be associated with food because it's such a benign and and sort of nice thing. Um, so anything that you know gets them away from death and destruction, economic imperialism, um, failures, um, racism, all those kind of issues that are actually most people do associate with um, with the militarized power structures and the securitized yeah. power structures of the United States. Actually, but if they can cover that up with a layer of icing both metaphorically yeah. and literally um th- th- that seems to be you know part of what they do uh, make make things all nice and fluffy
2: yeah I actually have now discovered a disagreement I have with myself which is that I said before that you I know I agree with
1: that disagreement <laughs> okay,
2: the Frankie Boyle um the, you know I think that is very 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 true however I I If I somehow suggested that we should downplay what the veterans go through or Mm -hmm. because having lived in the States, I think one of the things that is almost like nobody is allowed to argue with or no one does is the support the troops you know it's like stupid stuff you you see in like coffee bean or or starbucks and they're like support the troops and buy coffee or whatever like a thing they always have this thing and it's just so uncritical they only support the troops to send them to war or you know they don't support the troops when they come back and they certainly don't support any of the consequences of what sending them to war is so
3: so, I guess like, know, that I, was I agree. Actually,
1: that there are organizations you know, ones like um, Veterans for Peace. Yes, you know, which are, I would agree with their perspective, probably on on uh, geopolitics, uh, but they're also, you know, their their focus is on um, you know on uh, domestic uh, Western soldiers who have been sent out and and lied to, um, and you know, in the end, you know, well, Vietnam was a case where you know millions of people died in in Asia and uh, only. 58,000 American servicemen, but you know, there's also, there's the, the six figure number of people who are injured out of that as well. So, you know, it did devastate um, uh, the American society as well. Uh, and I guess I can see why there's, why Frankie Boyle, for example, had that take on things when, you know, throughout the 80s and 90s in particular, which would be when he was kind of growing up and becoming politically uh, aware, um, actually the united states did, didn't lose any troops anywhere and that was because of what was called the vietnam syndrome before you know which was you know the complete reluctance to lose anyone to have anyone get into a body bag um after after vietnam they didn't want to be sucked into conflict which is a good thing generally speaking for the world um but by the by the time um uh, by the, just after 911 that stopped becoming such a thing you know a lot of people a lot of american servicemen did die in at uh, service personnel did die in um, in Iraq for uh, for instance. It was it was a very different uh, conflict. But wasn't
2: like the Vietnam War. I remember this um movie. I think by Aaron Sorkin. That like something five. Do you remember that movie with um not Barat but Sasha Think <laughs> I think Cohen. Cohen's film. Um, Chicago Five or something like that. So, or seven. Oh, the,
1: oh, the Chicago Five. The the one about the the when he's her. Uh, Herbie Hoffman, the, um, the the protester. Yes. I've seen that. I don't remember that well enough to comment on. I'm not there sure was just to...
2: this one part where they were watching the names of oh. casualties on the TV, which is something we would never do now, obviously, because there are no, you know, acknowledgement of American casualties. Yes,
1: we don't do casualties. Um, right. I mean, that's, that's, there, there's a great little hypocrisy or lie. I mean, the, the, the Americans said that for many, many years, we don't do casualty figures. And now the Russians have been saying, we don't do casualty figures. And then, of course, our side is like, oh, the Russians are so barbaric. They're the only ones who don't care. And it's like, well, we did that, actually. Um, Throughout all my life, um, the Americans specifically said that they would not um, uh, do casualty figures. Um, And so there were only ever these sort of unofficial estimates.
2: Yeah, I mean, it seems like we have a lot of projection, though, to be fair. Almost everything we accuse anyone of, we're most likely doing. I'm curious
3: kind of um, how, because from what I understand with the big budget movies, like Top Guns and what, whatever it is, that the the Pentagon have uh, exert leverage over Hollywood by having all these lovely toys and like tanks and planes and things like that. And they say, if you want to use these great things in your movie, um, then we get a say in in these edits, or we get a lot of say in in these edits. But with, I I wonder how that works with things like the Ellen DeGeneres show or Home Alone 3, as you mentioned in- The answer to that is uh, at present, um, we have not
1: quantified the results to that. Someone at some point, should make graphs and present data that shows the level of involvement somehow of the US government um, in all of these different shows and then somehow plot them on uh, on graphs. But we,
2: we,
1: you've got to remember that in the end, we have, we have acquired, um, whatever it is, about 40,000 pages of documentation. Um, and then we're starting to put that through databases now, particularly, again, Roger and Tom, as I understand it, um, I, th- I think they're uh, leading on that at the moment, uh, uh, and then and then we've been doing this documentary and publicizing this out of it, and we uh, we did this book as well, me and uh, me and Tom. And so the, there's just some things that we don't we can't we don't know the exact patterns for that. I suspect that what we'll find with things like um, Cake Boss and the Ellen DeGeneres Show um, and uh, and and some other courtesy. Um, uh, support that the, that the military is given. Sometimes it's perhaps not that important, um, and maybe they haven't changed narratives, or maybe they've not even changed scripts. It's just kind of courtesy stuff, you know. They just, for for example, sometimes military personnel appear on game shows, um, and then they might have some cheesy thing like you know they they're reunited with their bomb dog or something like that. You know, they're sn- the uh, minefield sniffer dog or something like that, or maybe they'll be, maybe they'll be hooked up with a uh, a call to their wife if they're in um, uh, you know if they're deployed if they've been deployed in Afghanistan or something so there are these kind of things but you might just see that as like well it's the TV you know making a nice story and it's kind of okay maybe it's feel good whatever it's not necessarily the end of the world so I I do think that when that's being done as a pattern it's it's still generally speaking a bad thing the fact that that apparatus is there makes it propaganda apparatus but sometimes those things might be more benign than others the ones that are really concerning are when there are root and branch changes made to uh, to whole scripts or indeed where a film could not be uh, could not actually be produced without the military being involved and then particularly when that film is being um extremely hostile to uh, to a foreign power i mean uh, top gun you just mentioned top gun 2 for example i mean they don't mention it by name but that is a movie that basically endorses um, through every aspect of the script and of the visual uh, visual scenery, endorses Tom Cruise going to bomb an Iranian nuclear facility. I mean,
3: yeah,
1: <laughs> but th- th- there's an example, but there are many, many examples of very, very heavy-handed um, involvement or, or even changes made, and that's on things like you know, like say you know. Uh, anything to do with the lost nuclear weapons, anything to do with racism or uh, mental illness in the, the army, or suicide, uh, suicidal ideation in the military, or every possible conceivable thing. But yeah, there probably are some cases where it, it's it's perhaps a bit more benign, and I wouldn't necessarily oppose
2: that. Um, I mean, I guess I would oppose that because. <laughs> yeah, I thought you might. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because um, I just think about I can't remember what channel Ellen DeGeneres is um, on, but um, think about the the part you highlighted in the documentary about NCIS and how they actually came in with a specific storyline to show to try to show that um, rape in the military is really not such a big deal. It's only like a few bad apples type of. Uh, storyline that they put forth just thinking about that like I think if you think about it in terms of network and that's probably why you know therefore you have soft power on all these different levels and also um, NCIS is one of I think it's the top paying show so like that means that um, I have a friend who had like a one line on that show and she basically paid her bills for a whole year so it's like Um, yeah, the residuals you get off that show because it's syndicated. It's been, you know, running for sh- like over a decade, probably. Like you're getting like so many residuals from that show. That means that it's so ubiquitous, you know? Um, So in that way, I think it's really hard. Like, you know, if you just took it out and siloed Ellen DeGeneres' show, but it's obviously not going to be like that. The rest what? of the network is going to be involved in this too. So it is not benign. I don't think it's benign at all.
1: Yeah, I, I mean it, it's it's systematic. I guess uh, I'm not. Yeah, I guess I uh, yeah I'm not saying that it's benign. I'm just saying that some productions are more malign than others.
2: And it uh, seems benign, I think, yeah, but yeah, accumulative.
1: Yeah, you
2: know, is, coming uh, away with that.
1: Yeah, I, I think. The, I, I mean, I think ultimately, if there was a reform um, in the way that this system operated, um, and it still allowed for there being some kind of, um, uh, military liaison. Um, I, I think that wouldn't necessarily be a bad outcome, um, in terms of like democratic, you know, proper d- democratic procedures and accountability and all that. I don't think that the, the, the entire practice ne- necessarily needs to be destroyed root and branch. Um, yeah, but I guess there, like... there are organizations like, I mean, uh, well, I was going to say the FBI, but actually the FBI are quite bad as well, really. But they're not as bad as the CIA and and, um, uh, and Department of Defense. Um, and similarly with the police forces as well, NYPD and. Um, yeah, uh, I
2: was actually going to say that that the the
1: they're still quite bad.
2: They're quite bad, and also that that part in the documentary where you talked about there was this film with Lawrence Fishburne in it, and it was about racism in the military. Oh,
1: yes. What was yeah. that
2: called? Uh, I don't remember what that uh, was.
1: Called. Was it Men of Honor? Um, was it? I yeah, haven't but watched it yet. Yeah. It was dealing with historic racism in World War II, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, like, and they made it like again.
1: Way, yeah,
2: yeah. A, again, like a few bad apples, and obviously yeah, not yeah. the top, top yeah. people. Yeah. Um, it just really reminded me of like this movie by Spike Lee. Spike Lee. Yeah. The Black KK Klansman. Um,
1: yeah, was that the remember? one set in Vietnam?
2: No, it was about the KKK. And it was about oh, the Black. Yeah. The black Clansman
3: comedy, yeah. Uh, in the last three years, I think it's just called Black Clansman, yeah. isn't
2: it? But yeah, but it has like are. KKK in there, so you yeah, know, it's yeah. about the KKK, yeah. I guess. um And I just always thought, I I'm wondering if that also had a military um, police funding because it had the same thing where they turned it at the end to to make it seem like, oh, it's only this one racist cop, but actually the other ones are okay, you know. <laughs>
1: That, that that would be very interesting because I wouldn't have thought that Spike Lee as a very independent I filmmaker either. would be would uh, permit that. I mean, there are some of these filmmakers who do have the uh, the ability, the clout. Uh, Oliver Stone being another Spike Lee. Um, yeah, but I think Spike Lee
2: may have turned. I think he endorsed Kamala Harris. though.
1: So. Mm, I, I, I think there are. Yeah, so yeah who knows? Plugged into the mainstream things at various times, hasn't he? Democrat Party and. Um so i I don't know, but um we haven't uh, we haven't looked at that one unfortunately. I
2: may be smearing him, so yeah. <laughs> 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 speaking of smears, <laughs> okay, cool. so is there anything else that we should cover because I feel like we've been talking for a while, we've been covering quite a few things. Oh, wait, did you not want to talk about Marvel? Um. <laughs>
3: Uh, no, I was going to say, well, yeah, I mean, I was saying, um, I did see something the other day talking about um, how David Graeber wrote um, something about um, superhero movies, maybe back in 2013. He wrote like an article, and I think at the time, um, The Dark Knight was the biggest, you know, it was, that, it wasn't Marvel, it was, it was the Christopher Nolan Batman stuff that was like the biggest thing going and he he was kind of writing about those in in that context and saying that it's nothing well it's only tangentially related but he was kind of saying how these superhero movies tend to really be pro the status quo they don't use their you know they don't they tend not to ever use their powers for um to change society in any in any way. Well, obviously, Bruce, Bruce Wayne's a billionaire and things like that. And he just spends all his time making these tech, uh, these high tech weapons so that he can, you know, hurt criminals who um, try and overturn things. And a lot of the time, the 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 criminals are people who make actually kind of make really good points. So generally what, you know, want to i don't know One like you want to destroy the system as, 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 yeah so, um address societal injustice but then they do something really crazy like halfway through um like kill loads of people and and they they go quote unquote crazy and then and then the the story invites the viewer to obviously dismiss um dismiss the villain and obviously the only the only way to go ahead is to side with batman or whatever and um that um but um this person was kind of um updating it to talk about marvel movies and like things like black panther and stuff and um uh, the plotline in black panther was that um i think um actually the bad guy or the villain had a really really good point about like injustice and racism and things like that but he kind of goes crazy halfway through and, um and then black panther has to kill him so um, it kind of reminded me of that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's perhaps something inherently conservative about um, mm. about uh, superhero films. Um, mm. I kind of feel that everyone knows superhero films <clears> so well that there'll be a, a, a bunch of kids watching this uh, who, who will interpret things <laughs> more sharply than, than than I will. But um, but I would yeah, I'd chuck in that you know, uh, I mean, the, that Batman film, for instance, which was a brilliant film, to be fair. At least mm-hmm. it was good, um, The Dark Knight. But, you know, the, the, I think it was that one where, um, you know, surveillance society comes in for, uh, 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 and uh, and ultimately Batman and Michael Kane his butler, <laughs> who's been part of, like, British imperialist rule as well, um, you know, they, they decide to, to surveil all of society because, and they know that they will then destroy the surveillance equipment afterwards um because they're so righteous you know and that's kind of like the re- they it's not explicit but it's kind of saying you know this is what in a democratic society this is what we do we collect data and that might be a bit invasive but it's for your own good and then don't worry we will get rid of all that data afterwards and that's kind yeah. of what that, that film was implying but i wouldn't like to criticize too heavily um uh the uh, the Batman series around that time because at least it was a decent decent movie. Yeah,
0: it's
3: kind a of a of shame. That <laughs> it's
1: kind <laughs> of insulting. Yeah, but if you read um, Trisha Jenkins and T- Trisha Jenkins and Tom Secker's book on superheroes and uh, movies in the state, um, they go through uh, all of the documentation on that which is a little bit more updated than, um, than mine and Tom's book, uh, they go through the documentation to show... Whoa, my uh, video's gone funny. They show the documentation, um, for instance, to show that the whole Iron Man franchise began um, as an anti-war um, production, yeah. uh, an anti-war narrative. Oh, wow. Can you it imagine? take uh, um turned 180 degrees. Now, we, me and Tom kind of knew that for a while um, because we'd had some of the early documentation, But um, he subsequently acquired more things that were really really able to piece together exactly how that happened and why it happened uh, and with Pentagon involvement. Sorry, my video keeps going weird. Um, So there's a good example. But a load of the Marvel films have been worked on by the DoD. uh,
3: But it's just all just a disgrace, really. Yeah, I really remember thinking that Mickey Rock's character, the baddie, had had such a good point in that movie. (laughs) So this explains a lot of it.
0: One one of them is called Infinity Wars, uh, wars, isn't oh, it? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: Yeah, great.
0: Yeah, but it's, yeah. Um, and and just just thinking about you know Julian's situation, it's also you yeah. wonder why the entertainment industry hasn't come up in more force. Um, you know the writing's on the wall about uh, Julian's case, like about how 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 what a what a what a pivotal moment this is, how this extradition case is um is decisive, sets a precedent, so on. But you know, it's in the same way, all these actors, you know, they could they could be the face, they could easily um speak up for Julian and and in the public's eye, that would be huge. That would be huge. You yeah. know, Christian Bale, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who's played um Julian in 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 that film that was uh, bad
2: as a narcissist, right? He played him as a narcissist.
1: Um, Adrian, um, I I don't know if you've uh, I'm sure you've seen the um the letters between Julian um and Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, I only read them quite recently because for a uh, the new introduction to my uh, to the issue of my book, um, uh, I decided to look more carefully at the, at the discussion between Benedict Cumberbatch and Julian Assange. Because I kind of thought at the time, um when I'd casually read it, I thought, well, Benedict Cumberbatch is probably just doing his best and all that. But I really looked carefully at the language that he had used. And actually, by the end of it, I came out thinking, this is, this is a, a bit of a slime, really. Um What was this, his point? The, the, like, What, I was, mean, his what reason? Julian was trying to do with, uh, with Cumberbatch was to say, look, honestly, don't be part of this thing. It's going to be a propaganda. It's going to promote... Um, lies and deception, so I'm asking you as a human being don't do it. I mean pe- people should check out the letters, they're a really fascinating exchange um, of two men at the height of their careers and their powers um, as um, one being perhaps the best journalist, the most innovative journalist in the world um, and the other one being one of the most famous um, actors in the world um, and, and well respected as a star as well but it was quite interesting that um, although they both make points, I think, that sort of sound um, legitimate. Ultimately, there was a few things that Cumberbatch said, which I just thought was so interesting about the way that he viewed what he was doing. So, for instance, he talks about how, um, you know, he can't possibly be um, uh, be uh, a mouthpiece for, for propaganda because, you know, uh, the money wasn't worth it. You know, the money wouldn't wasn't sufficient to to make that worth it. It's like, it's like it's as if I'd be a shill for right wing propaganda. What? It's like, yeah, well, OK, but that's a funny, it's a very shallow way of looking at it. It's like um, and he said, oh, well, I've done I've done things for more money than that before. So, you know, I would sell out for, for for the pennies that I got for uh, for the fifth estate. Um, and there are a couple of other things he said as well, where I know you could take it with a pinch of salt, but he sort of said, you know, I'm just a vain actor. Um, you know, so and it's like, well, yeah, it does sound like you are actually. Um, yeah, but then you're just I, a useful idiot,
2: and you, you're not even a well paid useful idiot.
1: well, I mean, everyone's a useful idiot to someone, um, particularly if you're well paid. But, but he also talked about how, um, uh, about how there uh, there could only be a, a personal truth, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and he also he, he also refused to condemn, actually, very specifically, he refused to condemn the 35-year sentence that was given to Chelsea Manning as well. When he was given an opportunity by the press, he didn't say no to that. And actually, it was the state that released uh, Chelsea Manning earlier than that. But, he, but that thing about personal truth was interesting, because Julian was talking about documented, objective reality. And Benedict Cumberbatch was talking about all we have, really, is our own personal truths. I don't like that because that was Benedict Cumberbatch being a slippery, slidey, uh, uh, faceless, yeah. chameleon yeah. actor. And it was Julian Assange being objective, reality, journalism, accuracy. And that to me is the difference between rock and slime.
0: Yeah, there's 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 quite a few things there, Matt. Um, one of the things the speech that i always keep uh, coming back to and recommending people to hear which is uh, harold pinter's Noble acceptance speech which is a fantastic like it's one of the best speeches i think ever um it talks precisely about truth there is artistic truth and there is the truth as a citizen this was at uh, during the, the iraq invasion so it it was it's very interesting um in in light of, of, of what you're saying you know he, he talks about how elusive the truth as an artist, is, it's always slipping away and you know, mute, mutating and all this kind of thing. But, but as a citizen, you have a, you, you know, truth means, means truth. Um, but also uh, one of the things that also turns my stomach because um, I went to Lambda and apparently Benedict Cumberbatch also went to Lambda, but um, that's a little aside, but um, one of the things that uh, turns my stomach, you know, hearing what you're saying about um, and being reminded of that exchange uh, between uh, how did it come about from Julian was is the fact that he's also done this film the film with Jodie Foster about um,
1: yeah about, so and he's that. great in it as well by the way it's really yeah. worth watching that one um, yeah
0: and, and wait which one is that um, it's the more the Mar- the
2: Mauritanian
1: Mar- oh, no I the Mauritanian he was in that. is, is also awesome.
0: yeah, sorry the Mauritanian that's
2: uh, a really good film
0: yeah right yeah so he's in that. Um, and so he's he has this funny profile as an actor where he's in these films um, another one is uh, a Netflix production I think that um where he's uh, a British businessman that's recruited unwittingly sort of he he's asked to sort of go travel to to the Soviet Union and sort of they sort of he becomes entangled in his relationship with this um nuclear uh they're, they're yeah, the, I don't exactly remember what type of nuclear scientist he is, but he's he has he basically manages to smuggle out plans, and he spends time in prison, um, away from his family and children. And like I was thinking, how is how is this person not like he's he's doing the work of an actor and he's doing it so yeah. well and yet he's so divorced from
1: yeah on both of those roles yeah like it's, that, it, I mean... it's just I guess it's just being shallow and being a bit of a chameleon I um, mean that's the nature of the actor whereas mm. Julian is rooted in the nature in of the reality actor. excuse um, me Matt. and that's the great irony so, sorry, sorry.
2: <laughs> I was like the nature of the actor excuse me both Adrian and I are actors <laughs> <laughs> and you apparently too, Matt. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've only ever played a Doctor Who fan fiction baddie, <laughs> but I was
2: oh. <laughs> oh good, yeah. I mean, yeah. no, it's it's not the nature of an actor; it's the nature of someone who's incredibly it seems sounds very self centered, <laughs> lacking in any sort of moral compass, and
0: it's also sorry, uh, like uh, it's it's this. It's this uh, double thing. It's how how people yeah. it how how people can massacre somebody from some control room in the morning and then go home, and you know just I don't know, have a beer, by the barbecue in the afternoon and just fall, fall asleep. Like uh, I mean, I'm not saying you know I'm not saying it's the same thing as what <laughs> coverage about to doing, but this disconnect is. Yeah. My yeah job. but
2: it is it's it's not the same thing but it's part of the same machine and if he doesn't even understand that and he thinks it's only about money like he seems to think that propaganda is, is only about money or something and he doesn't understand the soft power or anything about like he doesn't seem to or he's pretending not to um oh,
0: really?
2: understand the soft power um you're part of that the machine that enables the drone strikes yeah, I don't know what,
0: your, what what your work there is with that, Matt, but I think that Cumberbatch is probably a very good case study in all of this sort of, especially in like homography and like what we're, you know, his connection to doing and all that. Is. So, yeah. um
1: yeah. Uh, incidentally, viewers might be interested in um, Tom Secker's analysis of uh, the Courier, um, because although although like you say, you know, his character plays some someone who you'd have thought would trigger in, um benedict's head uh, the connection with julian um the actual overall narrative of that is one of these really anti russian um uh, narratives which is kind of um you know sort of presenting uh, the soviet union in the 1960s as a major military threat um to the united states mm-hmm. but it but it uses language to um uh, uh to, to basically fabricate that um, and then the whole story of what actually happened with The Courier, who's played by, by Cumberbatch, is um, is also just framed in a way that um, is incredibly uh, West-centric and, and, uh, and makes it look like the Cuban Missile Crisis was uh, averted by this. And it kind of glorifies the CIA within that. CIA, I oh think, involved in the production of that, of that film in 2020. Um it's, it's, there's a there's a, as an aside, there's a really interesting um avenue to go down there if uh, if people want to Is, it, I don't
0: remember type. misremember i I seem to think that the CIA handler has some sort of real qualm, some real uh she's she's um having some real uh, crisis of conscience uh of re- recruiting yeah. like she's you know, very flustered at one
1: point uh, i don't know i think they have to screw over some contact in um uh in the soviet union don't they like they have to abandon an asset or something like that um and they always do that in the way that um uh, iliana you were talking about with the frankie boyle thing you know they make it seem like that's the worst thing that's ever ever happened is that they have to allow some poor uh, man or woman in a foreign country to die um uh, so they often build uh, build these uh, things around. In fact, that links in with with the one of those other accusations about Julian Assange himself, which was to do with um, you know the idea that he didn't redact, he didn't cross out enough material, and therefore it put um, people's lives put assets lives at risk, particularly in say Afghanistan. But we also know, actually, if you look at the paperwork on that, well, which of these, ha- which person ever? Was in any problem because of that? Mm-hmm. Um, a, I don't think Julian did was remiss with any of that. I think he did redact material. He did cross out the right material with no help from the State Department, incidentally. But also, secondly, um, there's no evidence to suggest that um, that anyone was the victim of having their cover blown um, due to those WikiLeaks revelations. I, th- I think there was a, a recent story about that. I was speaking to to deeper. Um, where there was some kind of tangential link with someone who had some, some kind of problem or other, I haven't looked into that, but, but, but there, but there's a, a, again, assets and things. It's it's a a similar link.
2: Did you speak to Deepa Driver on your podcast about this particular?
1: I I don't really have a podcast, but I did decide to speak. I, I, I just decided to put out a few interviews with Deepa because I felt that the case of Julian Assange was so, uh, everything about the legal process and deeper was the uh, uh Deepa is the um sort of like the official observer like a neutral observer or as neutral as she can be and I felt having spoken to her informally at, um I think it was Julian Assange's wedding about uh, a year or a year or so ago um I felt that um everything about that case was so perverse um I mean talk about perverting the course of justice uh things like the you know the uh uh, I, don't, I don't even know where to start really but every element every little chapter of that I did in those interviews was was about some kind of sick irony to do with um Julian being um being victimized I mean the one that coach comes to mind now is you know when they they did an HIV test on him and they said that it was positive um and then they uh, then two weeks later they tested him again and they said oh, oh yeah, it was just a, it was just wrong it's like I mean all right maybe it's a coincidence but it's pretty unlikely to get off false positive on an HIV test and to put someone through that um, for a couple of weeks is just disgusting um, but there are a lot of elements to that uh, to his treatment that that I mean that's been identified um, by people more objective and more in the know than, than I am as being torture. but the details of it I found just really rattling um, really spooky. It was like a ho- it was like a horror film to me watching uh speaking to Deeper Driver about that. But and reading uh Nils Mels's book. It's just it just feels like one day that is going to be, you know, like the gothic horror what's happened to uh, the gothic horror of the early twentieth twenty first century, what's happened to Julian Assange and how he's been kept in a dungeon for years. Good.
2: Yeah, absolutely horrific. Um, on that
1: yeah, beat note,
2: yeah, on that upbeat note, <laughs> does anybody have anything <laughs> up to?
1: <All> right. <laughs> I'm doing all right,
2: um, yeah, do you have any um inspiring words of wisdom, Adrian? Um,
1: <laughs>
0: putting you well. on the spot, you, that, you know, one just going back to uh, to something you know, it becomes back to me um a lot like is that uh, in this sort of landscape of almost being watching our like consuming um entertainment and information in an atomized way you know we're all in front of our private screens and that's how we do things it's been a real it's been really in- inspiring and powerful to to do q a's especially in person but with Ithaca because it 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 goes against that it, it um it, you know also with you know having acted in in a theater and loving the theater and going to the theater like but just just being in a room with people um again and after covid of course and all of this kind of thing but just being in a room with people that can that human connection that that um one to one and and is so important and that really gives me hope I mean it's it, it just means that there are other ways that i i think that you know be, being conspiracy theorists or whatever you want to call it that they are trying to atomize us and make us consume media this way and separate us and um so we can't necessarily commune about what we've just seen in the way that we would in the theater like um, I think that, that, you know, doing a QA tour like that and also talking to other filmmakers who follow their films and connect to audiences in sort of directly. I think that there is, that is, I don't know if it's on the rise, but it exists and it certainly um, counteracts that, that sort of feeling that we're alone, the feeling that we're, you know, that it, it, it it counteracts some sort of despair as well. You know, you know, it's easy to despair looking at the fucking horrors everywhere all the time. But this does, it it, it is something tangible and very, you know, very powerful, I think.
1: uh, If you don't mind me just mentioning my favourite moment politically of last year was on Question Time on BBC One when... um, the chairman of the Conservative Party, who's just resigned over that five million quid tax bill, um, but uh, Nazim uh, Zahari was on Question Time, and he uh, he was asked uh, to apologise for the Liz Trust government, and he um, was asked repeatedly over several minutes, and eventually he blurted out words to the effect, um, "You know what would Vladimir Putin want us to to be right now? He'd want us to be divided." like trying to appeal to the, yeah, the audience to say come on you know like defend me you know this is exactly what our enemies want and at that moment and only at that moment the audience pissed themselves laughing at him <laughs> and that was a really good sign because that ability of the public to see through lies is there it's just we need to find the right mechanisms um, right. And the right inspirational things, and uh, things need to come together. But the public can do that. They're they're up for it. They're, they're as cynical as 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 ever, maybe more so. But it's just it's difficult to get those those messages through for all sorts of reasons. Um, not least that one of the greatest messages of this um, uh, of the past ten or fifteen years is uh, currently in Belmarsh prison. But we can do it. We can still do it. we Can still
2: do. And I think you're right. if we if there are more of our voices, the consequences of flack at least won't be as harsh mm-hmm. because you're right. I haven't I've talked to lots of people about um Julian Assange. and apart from like maybe like, well, then China would do it or whatever, like we discussed. no one really no one comes away going like, I mean, no one I've talked to has come away going like, Oh no, but those war crimes at the U S that's fine. Like, you know, everybody is like on board with it being wrong that he's imprisoned. They just think, I mean, the ones that dissent are the ones that are like, Oh, but China or Russia, but no one actually disagrees. You know what I mean? Like, so public sentiment I think broadly is with us. It's just, how do we, it's like what you're saying, how do we penetrate, how do we penetrate the mainstream? Um,
1: well, I mean, Stella Assange has done a good job with that in terms of uh, getting into the uh, into the mainstream. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a good example. Um, I, I guess it's you know, w- what's the step after that uh, for both for Julian's sake, but also the, these broader um, messages of of peace and uh, diplomacy and uh, negotiation, being rational in uh, foreign policy. These are big things to get to get right, but it's not necessarily impossible to to. to to take advantage of, including taking advantage of um of other aspects of the conversation. So for example, the right wing of the Republic the right wing of the Republican Party, my, my God. <laughs> but they are reluctant, for example, to keep stoking the, the fires of, of Ukraine. But
2: they um, they so want to guys. stoke the fires of China. So it's the China not the best example. Yeah, there's, there's,
1: there's, there's not a great happy ending to this this podcast, I don't think. But um, but there are there are there are always waves of public opinion and of uh, and waves that are happening within um elite political culture which can be um that can be jumped on uh, and that that could be that could work um at least for a while and then maybe we can find another wave to jump on and then you know what i mean something like that it's all gonna be okay. <laughs> oh my God. All right.
2: Thank you so much, guys. Um, If there's nothing else you guys want to add, we can stuff on that note, which was semi-hopeful. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it.
1: Okay. Nice to see you.